Hello, I'm Mark Sweeney. On this episode of ITG, much like I did about a year ago, I'd like to celebrate July the 4th, the United States of America's birthday, with a look back at a tomahawk story. I've long been a fan of DC Comics' great long-running Revolutionary War hero who, beginning in the waning days of the Golden Age of Comics, along with teen sidekick Dan Hunter, protected the frontier from the British Army, native tribes sympathetic to the crown, and... And later on, by Silver Age editorial edict, loads of dinosaurs, giant gorillas, strange fish monsters, and all manner of wild, wonderful creatures that, it was hoped, would move magazines at the newsstand if emblazoned on the cover. Tomahawk enjoyed very healthy runs in Star Spangled Comics, World's Finest Comics, and in his own title, and for a period of about two years was featured in all three simultaneously, which is some feat, as I don't think loads of characters can claim the achievement of starring in three concurrent titles. In a typical issue of Tomahawk from around this time, you'd find three Tomahawk and Dan Hunter stories, most of them drawn by definitive Tomahawk artist Fred Ray. There'd also be a couple of one-page or half-page humor strips like Chief Hotfoot or Sagebrush Sam, sandwich in between Frontier Adventure, one or two illustrated one-page pieces on Native American culture, and a one-page text story that, until recently, I usually skipped. A story I'd like to recap and comment on this time out is the first of three Tomahawk stories in issue 51 of his eponymous series, cover dated September 1957. It's called General Tomahawk, and I promise in this recap to do as little singing as possible, but there might be some, I'll warn you. So why don't we get this over with? I mean, why don't we get on with it? Credits for issues of Tomahawk from around this time can be a little spotty. I couldn't come up with any writer credits, but the cover to the issue depicting Tomahawk and his young partner Dan Hunter at the bow of a boat armed with whaling harpoons, very distinctive for its purple sky filling the top quarter of the composition. The cover and the artwork in the lead story, General Tomahawk, is by Bob Brown. As I mentioned before, Fred Ray handled most of the art chores on Tomahawk, and he indeed illustrates two out of the three stories in this issue, but General Tomahawk is by Bob Brown, who has had a long list of credits both at Marvel and DC. I most closely associate Brown with the dozens of covers he drew for Tomahawk and for the Doom Patrol, but also uh, for his run of pencils on Daredevil during Steve Gerber's run on that book. The story General Tomahawk opens with a half-page splash panel homage by Bob Brown to Emanuel Lutz's famous painting Washington Crossing the Delaware, a boat full of continental soldiers that, at the oars, claws its way through a frozen river with Tomahawk in place of Washington striking a heroic pose at the prow. The men, even Dan Hunter, referred to Tomahawk as General, which is odd, as till now the frontier hero has been sort of a non-commissioned free agent, always aiding the Continental Army and fighting alongside it, but never bound by rank or official responsibility. But here, Thomas Hawks, wearing a very Washington-esque cloak and hat over his traditional buckskin, 
The group is heading into enemy territory in the dead of night, and Tomahawk claims to know that the fate of the Continental Army lies in their hands this night, which happens to be New Year's Eve, 1777, going on 1778. They approach a British fort, and Tomahawk swiftly takes out two sentries, and while the group contemplates its plan of attack, we flash back to the events which got us here. Tomahawk had recently been summoned to the headquarters of General Washington himself, the future first president and father of the country, laid out a dire situation. The Continental Camp in upstate New York is under siege. The already starving and frozen soldiers are put in an even more serious situation by a British blockade squeezing each of two supply trails from American headquarters. And these are conveniently delineated on a map in General Washington's office. And Washington sees no hope in either sending troop reinforcements or attempting to break the blockade, but commissions Tomahawk to visit the camp with a new temporary rank of general in the role of a morale booster. Washington is well aware of Tomahawk's reputation with the fighting men, in the army and hopes Tomahawk and Dan can somehow inspire the ragged troop through the winter. Basically, Georgie wants Tomahawk to do his job for him. So, Tomahawk and Dan skirt the edges of the British blockade and check in with the bedraggled American camp, observing firsthand how hungry, cold, how desperate these particular American revolutionaries have become. Tomahawk and Dan find out from the camp's injured commanding officer that the nearby British stronghold, Fort Royal, is fairly bursting with supplies. And when the date the next day, New Year's Eve, occurs to Tomahawk, and realizing that the holiday may be accompanied by a rather light British guard, the germ of an idea of a glimmer of a plan begins to form in his mind. And this is where we came in, with Tomahawk, Dan, and a small band of volunteers from the camp, crossing an icy river and approaching the British fort. So from right outside the British fort stockade, Tomahawk and crew can hear the revelry and toasting one might expect at a New Year's party. So they begin implementing their plan. Elements of this plan include a large number of the volunteers heading into the forest, start chopping down a few trees in order to make a raft that will haul their prospective spoils back across the river. It also includes a costume change for Tomahawk and Dan. They disguise themselves as roving frontier balladeers. And when they approach the fort, they petition the gate's watchman for entrance. And the holiday spirit must move these foolish watchmen. And they admit the balladeers who waltz in, accompanying themselves on a couple of lutes, singing their first song. The, the officer, officer of the watch... A kindly heart had he, 
not to chase us into the night and up a mulberry tree. So they made it in. Whew. Next part of the plan, disable the cannons. So they make their way up to the top of the fort's walls. And while Tomahawk entertains the cannoneers with a See the Yankee blighters run and scatter to the rear From the mighty blasts of the king's hearty cannoneer. While Tomahawk sings that, Dan pours water from his canteen into the kegs of gunpowder. That's smart. Next up, they head over to the quartermaster. It's time to grab the supplies. Tomahawk begins another song to distract the supply house's guards. Up stepped a pack of ragged men who pleaded they weren't bomby. Surrender, redcoats, all they cried, we're the Continental Army. Meanwhile, Dan sneaks up onto the roof, heads down the chimney, and Grinch-like starts sending up boxes of nourishment and clothing. Why, Dan left walls so bare in that house, there weren't nothing left for a little English mouse. Dan gives a signal from the roof, and Tomahawk bounds away with another little ditty. They meet up in the stable area, load up a wagon with their spoils, and are about to hightail it out of there when they notice the gate guard bolting up the heavy door. Well, Tomahawk quickly comes up with another plan. It involves filling up Dan's loot with gunpowder, sashaying his way under the noses of the two guardsmen, and another song. Guardsmen request a little entertainment, and Tomahawk is only too eager to comply. He leans Dan's loot against the gate, but begins to saunter away while strumming and singing. Set yourself, my lad, for a fast ride this night. Ready yourself, my lad, for the ride under moonlight. It's a little too late before the guards realize Tomahawk's been leaving a trail of gunpowder behind him. He quickly ignites the end of the powder trail. And this plan relies somewhat heavily on perfect timing. Dan bursts forth, driving a horse-drawn wagon, busting with stolen goods. The lit fuse makes its way to the powder-filled loot, and... Boom! gate explodes just in time for the wagon to pass through its cloud of splinters. Cannons lining the fort wall were of course rendered useless by Dan, who previously saturated their gunpowder. But there's one more snag in Tomahawk's plan. The river, the river has frozen solid overnight. So the raft the volunteers have been making while Tomahawk and Dan have been singing their hearts out isn't going to do them any good. Tomahawk's a quick thinker though, something that they stole something resembling a giant tablecloth or something is rigged up as a sail. And there was fortunately a, an amazingly beneficial wind blowing. Again, this plan relies on absolutely precise timing. And the wagon sails across the frozen river with fresh supplies and British uniforms for the Continental Army. The following day, Tomahawk leads a group of soldiers using their stolen uniforms to disguise themselves as a British brigade and tricks the units who have been set up to block the Continental Supply Line into leaving their posts, saying they're there under orders to relieve the blockaders of their duty. It didn't seem like the Tomahawk had to twist the blockaders' arms. They likely had had enough of a, an Adirondack winter. And so with supply lines clear, the American revolutionaries, now armed 
fed and clothed, could get back to the business of winning a war. I'm no expert on the American Revolution, but I'm pretty sure the events of December 1777 didn't quite go down like this. Uh, but the fact that the Continental Army was ill-equipped, especially to endure the winter months of the war, it's a pretty solid touchstone in revolutionary lore, and, and this story actually seems to conflate a couple of different events from around the time this story is set. The winter encampment at Valley Forge, Pennsylvania in 1777-1778 seemed especially harsh, with supply issues much, much worse than as depicted in this story. In the famous crossing of the Delaware by Washington to lead his force to victory at one of the battles of Trenton, New Jersey a year earlier, in December 1776, also sort of found its way into the story, with a little literary license taken. As much as I've come to love the 1960s sci-fi and fantasy-influenced adventures of tomahawk and crew with ghost tomahawks, uh, tomahawks made of fire, giant spiders and the like, I still think I prefer one of the more traditional frontier adventures, like this one, where the rangers might just run into a young Davy Crockett or a Thomas Paine, as in the story I recapped last year, or, or like a George Washington in this outing. Although, come to think of it, a, a giant bow and arrow shooting gorilla is just an absurd an idea as Tomahawk and Dan infiltrating a British camp as talented minstrels. One of the things I like most about this story is the depiction of Tomahawk's intrinsic heroism, basically assigned by George Washington to babysit a beaten group of American soldiers. Tomahawk takes it upon himself to turn the mission on its ear, improvises, and not only improves the situation of his charges, but deals the British an embarrassing defeat. Good stuff. Without a writer credit for this story, though Ed France Heron was writing an awful lot of Tomahawk back then, I'd like to mention Bob Brown's art. Brown was not a flashy artist, not even as stylized or as instantly recognizable as Tomahawk's regular artist, Fred Ray. But his draftsmanship was impeccable, and he could tell a damn fine story. With much of the story happening at night, there's a lot of ink on the page. But nothing was obscured. The action came across well-drawn and with clarity. Bob, Bob Brown is someone I consider a, a gifted, classic comic book artist. With an obscene dearth in this day and age of collected tomahawk material, this story hasn't seen the light of day in some time. It was reprinted in the back of a much later issue of Tomahawk, number 129 from 1970. So that might be a place to check the story out. Uh, that issue can be found, I'm sure, for less than $10, which is a great price for any issue of this series. I'll be putting some of Bob Brown's artwork from the story up on the blog, itgblogcast.blogspot.com. Small note about that, up to now, with over 100 blog posts and podcast episodes, I'd say 99.9% .9 of the images I've uploaded have been scans from my personal collection, but the original owner of my copy of Tomahawk number 51 got a little creative with the issue's cover, coloring in each letter of the title with a different color, covering over tomahawks and Dan Hunter's face and hands with black marker and crossing out some of the cover copy. 
the thing's a mess. So I'm hoping to find a decent image of the cover on the internet. And that's what likely what you'll see on the blog. The uh, interior pages were fine. The images you see uh, from the story will be scans of Bob Brown's beautiful art from, from my copy of the issue. Uh, special commendations from General Tomahawk himself go to Captain Outrageous, Dr. Multiverse, Joey Shapiro, Laurent Zimney, Longbox Review, and Trekker Talk, the Ron Randall Appreciation Podcast recorded by the most excellent Darren and Ruth Sutherland. And an extra tin of rations to you for spending the last 20 minutes or so having a listen. Thank you very much. If you live in the United States, have a happy and safe fourth. And those elsewhere, a more general, take care.